chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, and let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we just thank you for all that you're doing here in our midst. We thank you for, for Daniel and the team and all that they're doing in the back, Lord. We thank you for our kids. We pray that you'd be speaking to them even today, Lord. As we learn here what you have to say to us, we pray that they'd be learning back there what you have to say to them, Lord, on their level. Uh, pray for anybody in this room who might be feeling that call to serve you in this capacity, Lord, that you'd be raising them up to do that. Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning, you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit. Please give us insight, give us understanding. Lord, please help us to, to know what you say this morning. We, we want to leave here closer to you than when we walked in. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pastor Zeke's away. Uh, just a quick warning, he's going to be away kind of a lot in the next couple uh, few weeks. He's uh, uh, celebrating his anniversary right now, and so they uh, drove up to Oregon, and they're on their way back now. Uh, and so when that happens, when Pastor Zeke's not here on a Sunday, uh, we go through the book of 2 Corinthians, whoever fills in in here. Um, and then he's going to be, you could be praying for him uh, in the middle of the month. Or towards Well, he'll be back for only a week, and then he's going to be gone three more weeks. He's going to uh, Southeast Asia to be doing helping with some pastor's conferences there. And so you could be praying for him. There's going to be a lot of travel involved and a lot going on. And so we'll be praying for him uh, with that. And then be praying for us. That, like, you know, we kind of joke around that the inmates run in the asylum while he's gone. <laughs> that, uh, that we'll just, we'll see how that goes. So hopefully, we always say, hopefully the place is still standing. Uh, when he gets back. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Pastor Jacob shared recently uh, from chapter 5, and, and really what's going on in 2 Corinthians is Paul is defending his apostleship. You wouldn't think someone like Paul would have to defend himself. You know, a, a guy like, I mean, I, I think he was the greatest apostle, right? Uh, writes half the New Testament, planted all these churches, goes on all these missionary journeys. You would think uh, his work would speak for itself, but uh, but the church in Corinth just seemed to be very very worldly, and, and both letters to the Corinthians are very corrective, right? Uh, there's this time, I believe it's in chapter 10, where the Corinthians had accused Paul. They said, man, he's strong in his letters. He knows how to write, but man, in his presence, he's weak, you know, and, and, and they don't respect him. And so he has to go throughout this book and correct them and set the record straight and at the same time teach them. And so it's very much of a, a father and a child in that relationship, right? You know, as a, as a parent, there's times that maybe you and your children aren't seeing eye to eye, right? It doesn't change the love involved, does it? The, the love's always there towards the children, but sometimes the, it's like, okay, I have to correct you and I also have to teach you at the same time. Uh, it's not right for a parent to just go silent or not speak to them. And so Paul is doing all that he can uh, because I'll tell you, if it was me and I was treated the way Paul was treated, there would be a great temptation to go, you know what? Figure it out yourself then. Go ahead and enjoy yourself. Enjoy, you know, the terrible life that you're living. But it, he's not like that. Like a parent, he goes, and we'll see that, that he talks to them like a father in just a bit. But uh, the last week when Pastor Jacob taught, there was three verses that really stood out. And so in chapter 5, you might mark uh, verse 9, verse 18, and verse 20. In, in verse 9, he talks about being absent 
from uh, the body is to be present with the Lord. And he says that we make it our aim, whether we're present or whether we're absent, that we want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. So, so that's kind of the backdrop of what he's been talking about as we move into chapter 6. He says, whether we're present or absent, we want to be pleasing to the Lord. In verse 18, he says that we've been given by God this ministry of reconciliation. We know that that word reconciliation means to bring two parties together, right? And so he's saying that as uh, workers with Christ in this world, he's given us the job of reconciling people to God. And, and then he sums that up in verse 20, saying that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we have been brought into the family of God, and we are now his representatives here in the world. And so we want to be pleasing to God, it said in verse 9. We have this ministry as his ambassadors of reconciling. That's the business that God has given us to do. And so here in chapter 6, he'll continue to defend his apostleship. And so let's read through all 18 verses, and then we'll come back and talk about them. He says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 3, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. In much patience, in tribulations, in needs, and in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, and tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fasting, by purity, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, and by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by dishonor, by honor and dishonor by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Verse 11, O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll dwell in them. Walk among them. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. Father, we just pray that you would make your word live to us right now. Lord, show us who we really are. Show us who you really are, God. Lord, it's for your sake that we want to draw near to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul starts and he goes through this uh, like he usually does, as is Paul's writing style. He starts with doctrinal indicatives and he goes into practical imperatives, right? That he says, because this is true, because this is what it is, then we ought to behave this way. And he goes back and forth that way, right? So we start the, the chapter knowing what he just said in the last, that we're ambassadors for Christ, 
that, that we have this work of reconciliation to do, that we always want to be well-pleasing to him. He starts out verse, verse uh, 6 and says, or chapter 6, verse 1, he says, we then as workers with him. It starts out that there's work involved and it's done with him. I find that in the Christian life, God's best for us isn't usually inactivity and it usually isn't comfort, right? Uh, I used to always say when I worked pipeline, man, this job ain't nothing but work, right? All we ever do is work here. Well, that's good. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be work. It's not necessarily supposed to be easy all the time because I don't know if you're anything like me, but when there's no work, I tend to be lazy. Is anybody else that way? You could be lazy at times that if there's not something to do, we won't do anything. And so what we're called as ambassadors is to work. And so sometimes I think of the Christian life, and there's this old quote. It says it's involved in the very nature of the task, walking with God, that we're never at the end of it right? Uh, as we follow God, as soon as there's one victory, as soon as there's one task completed, it seems like there's another one waiting for us. And, and there's times you can go, man, I'm tired. Now, this isn't to say that there's not rest that God gives. It's part of the Ten Commandments, right? That he says that after every six days, you should rest at least once. Thankfully, in this country, we have, a, well, for, for most of us, we have a pretty uh, solid schedule. We get two days off, so that's kind of nice. But at the very least, there should be a little rest. We don't work all the time, but there is work, in, in, in walking with the Lord, there's service to God. And he says that we're workers, not just aimless workers, but we're workers together with him. That we get to be a part, and it's a pleasure, guys. It is a pleasure to be involved in the work of God. Now, it doesn't say that God is a worker with us. We're a worker with him. And there's times that we can get things out of sync when we ask God to start working with us instead of us pausing and working with him. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the idea as if I've got a job to do and I've got something I do and I invite my son to help me in that work. Now, we'll get into what that even looks like, but, but I'm not, my son doesn't call the shots in our house. Uh, dad calls the shots. We used to always say, my daughter at one time goes, Daddy, I'm a princess. I go, sure you are. You're the princess. He's the prince. Mom's the queen, but I'm the king of the castle. <laughs> we, we run my, we're going to run my program here as best as I could hear from the Lord. That's the program we're running in this house, that I'm the king of the castle. You could be the princess, baby. You could be the princess all you want, but dad's the king. Okay, so we're going to follow what I say, and as I try to follow what God says. But the idea is that God, we don't just make our own plans and go, hey, God, do you, would you like to jump on board? Would you like to help me? You'll notice that when we do that and just say, God, why don't you follow my lead? That it's not always the best, right? Every once in a while, we're walking in the same direction as him, and he helps us. But it's so much better to start with fellowship with God and say, God, what is it that you want for me to be doing? Lord, what is your work that I would be involved with? You know, I was blessed. Yesterday, we had a meeting where we set together our church calendar for 2020. And, uh, and all our ministry leaders, we said, hey, before we even start, before we even start writing things on a calendar, we want to take a couple weeks to just seek the Lord. 
a couple weeks to just pray and a couple weeks to just get right with God. That's why we have our week of prayer and fasting in October. Because after that week is over, the hope is that our ministry leaders have spent enough time with the Lord that we're ready to hear his voice. And the things that we go forward in doing are the things that God has, in fact, called us to do. But sometimes we can get out ahead and we pray this routinely. Lord, we don't want to do something just because we've always done it. And we don't want to do something. We don't want to change just because we feel like we should change. We want to hear from you and we want to do what you've asked us to be doing. And I think this is good work in everything. Now, and I find it funny that as we're workers together with, with Christ, that when I think about it, God can do a lot better job if we were just ripped, pulled right out of the equation, couldn't he? Couldn't he do a better job? I mean, he's got angels. He's, I mean, he created the world in six days. I think he's got it together. He, he doesn't need my help to do anything, but he involves me in the work. And again, I remember uh, we just went on a little road trip recently, and my son, uh, he's getting to that age, he really wants to be a man, you know, and he really wants to help. And so, uh, hey, Dad, are we loading up the car right now? Can I, can I help you load up the car? And you kind of go, it's the thought that counts, buddy, but it's actually going to take longer if I let you do it. But, you know, there's this desire that he has to work alongside Dad. And so I invite him into the work, and so he's rolling the suitcases out, you know, and he's, you know, clumsily, like, getting them down the, you know, the steps and rolling them over. But, you know, it brings joy to my heart, doesn't it, to see that my son is involved in the work. And, and there's direction, and there's help. Again, it could have been done a lot quicker without him. And, and the same is true with us. We have to understand the privilege it is to be workers together with Christ that we get to be a part of the work that he's doing. And so Paul starts by saying, so we as workers with him, he says, we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Uh, I, I like that even though Paul has all this authority, he will, he's willing to still plead. He's humble. He doesn't just throw around his authority and say, you better listen here. He says, I'll plead with you. Please don't receive the grace of God in vain. What does it mean to, to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, I thought grace was free anyway, and it is. But Paul's talking about two different things here, that there's, there's salvation and there's sanctification, right? Uh, if we're not familiar with those terms, salvation, that happens in a moment. That, that's what uh, God does when we ask him to forgive us of our sins, when we ask him to come live inside of our lives. He, he saves us and, and, and we're forgiven. That's salvation. Sanctification is the process of the rest of our lives drawing closer to God, right? And he gives us grace to get through the rest of our lives. But there's like this two uh, kind of part to it that God does the saving. God does the work. It's his work, but we're invited to be part of it. And so there's sacrifice on our behalf. There's, there's work on our behalf. There's stuff to do. Not to earn God's favor. We already have that. But if we're going to get all that God has for us, then we got to work. There's a, a quote from David Guzik. He says, many Christians struggle at this point. Is God supposed to do it or am I supposed to do it? And the answer is yes. Yes, God does it. And yes, we do it. We trust God, we rely on him, and then we get to work as hard as we can. And this is how we see the work of God accomplished. And if I neglect my end of the partnership, God's grace doesn't accomplish all that it might have accomplished. And so the work is in vain.
And so we want to be doing all we can. And there's this urgency we see in verse 2. He says, look, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. In the day of salvation, I've helped you. And so, so he says, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today's the day to get to work. That, that there's times that it's like, you know what, I'll, I'll serve the Lord kind of soon. I'll serve the Lord when it's more, you know, convenient, at a more appropriate time, when I, when I have more time. You know, what do, what do we say? You know, you're a, you're a youth, you know, student, say, you're in high school. And you go, yeah, I'll really get to serving the Lord when I graduate high school. You know what, I'll really start serving the Lord after college when I'm settled. No, I'll, I'll start serving the Lord when things kind of, you know, slow down and I'm, and I'm in my career. Then I'll find the right amount of time to serve the Lord. And then when you're in your career, you're like, I'm so busy. I've got kids. It's too big. I can't serve the Lord. Well, you know what I'll do when I retire? That's when I'll serve the Lord. We got a few retireds in here, right? And what do you say? I've heard it from like every person I've ever heard retire. I don't know how I'm so busy now, right? I don't know how I had time to work. I'm so busy. Okay, maybe in my late retired years. And, and here's what the Lord would say to us. Now is the time. Make the time now to serve the Lord. Make it a priority today to get involved in this work that God has given us, this ministry of reconciliation. And I didn't even line the text up this way. Right? I, I get my assignment, you know, before. But I think it's appropriate, right, that, that Daniel comes up here and shares in children's ministry, and then we say, hey, now's the time. And it doesn't have to be children's ministry. But whatever it is that God's calling us to do, as we work with him, now's the time to do it. To, to make time. It's just like having kids, right? If you, if you were always just going, okay, there's going to be a time when I'm ready to have. There's never a time you're ready to have kids. But then you kind of find that as it's going and you've got kids, you go, oh, look, we're, we're, actually, we're just doing it. You know, we're just, we're just, we're just living. And, 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 and to make serving the Lord and being workers together with him a priority in our lives. Now, Paul's going to go through his resume here in verses 3 through verse 10. He's going to talk about that he really is an apostle. And, and he says in verse 3, we give no offense in any, anything that our ministry would not be blamed. Now, one of the things I love about Paul the Apostle is he would do anything to get the message out there. And he would do anything to do it above reproach. Uh, with the Corinthians, uh, in every, almost every other church Paul served, they supported him financially. But when the Corinthians complained about that, he says, hey, I won't draw a salary from you. I'll back off. I don't want you to have any reason to blame me for anything. So he would step back in that way. He would say also to the Corinthians, look, I've become all things to all men. Right? I'll do whatever it takes in order to see this message go out. And he says, and in no way do I want to give any offense, any stumbling block to anyone in the way that I serve the Lord. The truth is that the Corinthians still looked for ways to blame him. And so I think it might have been more appropriately said uh, that we, we wanted to give it so that our ministry may not be rightly blamed. But he says, in all these things, verse 4, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. This word minister means servants. It's not a capital M like a professional minister or anything like that. He said, we're all, as servants of God, we're all ministers of God. 
Whether, whether lowercase or capital letter minister, we're all ministers of Christ. And he says, in all things, we commend ourselves as, as servants, really, of God. And he starts out, the first uh, trait we see, he says, in much patience. A better translation uh, would be endurance. That to be a good minister of Christ Jesus, there needs to be endurance. There, there needs to be this sticking to it, even when it's tough. I think all of us, in one way or another, have had to find ways to endure. Uh, I think of athletes. You know, my little sister, she's a, she loved uh, running marathons. And, uh, and one time I said, you know, I'm going to try to train with you, and I'm going to try to, you know, do this marathon thing with you. You know, it seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> fun. Those words probably ought not go together. But so I remember trying, and I go, man, I just don't have the endurance that you have. I tried jogging one time. I remember I was living in Whittier, came up here, and we started here at the church, and we were going to jog up to the high school and then, like, around the big field, like, four or five times and then back down. And uh, I got to, like, Nielsen and Sheep Creek, and I was like, I am winded. And I start going up that hill. You pass the district office. You get, I, got to, I got to the football field. And she's already, like, out of my sight, you know, and I'm just like, I can't anymore do this and like it felt like my lungs were collapsing you know and and I just I hadn't built up any endurance but why could she keep doing it because she had kept testing herself and pushing herself and going further and going further and we learned to endure that way endurance really comes from continued practice there's a reason I still can't run more than three miles at a time why because I don't push myself to go any further right but but you and I in different ways We've learned endurance, haven't we? By not quitting and to keep going. And especially in our service of the Lord, there's times in my own service with the Lord, you know, they say you haven't really been a pastor until you've really wanted to quit. I remember doing youth ministry for years and I remember going into Ray Lou's office and I go, I quit, I'm done. This is, this is ridiculous. And I had this youth group of about 40 kids and I said, this is the biggest waste of time I've ever had that I'm trying to teach these kids and they don't care. They don't want to care. And then some of them, I send them to homes that their parents care even less. So what am I doing here? And I remember him going, is that the reason we do it? I thought we were doing it because God told us to do it. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter how hard. And I learned. That there's times when it's difficult, you keep pushing through. And there's endurance there. And for a guy like Paul, we can look at Paul's life and all go, okay, I don't have it so hard. Right? I don't have it as hard as maybe I thought I had it. But he goes through this whole progression, but it starts with patience. It starts with endurance. And then we see these kind of just general things just because we live in this world that come against us. He says there's tribulations, there's needs, there's distresses. Those are just the common problems that come because we live in a fallen world, right? That there's going to be tribulations. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be hardship. Life's not always easy. That's the, that's the, the lesson we love teaching our kids, right? Dad, that's not fair. Hey, life's not fair, right? Right? Hey, this is hard. Get used to it, buddy. It's always going to be hard. 
That there's some things in life that just tribulations come natural because we have a fallen world. There's times that, that he says there's needs. You remember how Paul says towards the end of his ministry there in Philippians, writing from a prison cell, he goes, I've learned how to be abased and I've learned how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I've learned how, both how to be full and to be hungry, to abound and to suffer need. And then what does he say? He says, I've learned how to be content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There were times that Paul found himself in need. There's times the bank account's full. There's times it's not so full, right? There's times that life just comes at you hard and fast, and there's needs. So he says that there's tribulations, there's needs, and then there's just distress. Times where you're going, I don't know if I can go on. I don't know if I can keep going. And Paul goes, I know what that feels like. As a servant of God and as someone who's helping at this time lead the church, he says, I know what it's like to have endurance. And part of it's just because life is life. That there's tribulations, there's needs, there's distress. But then there's also problems that come from outside, from others towards him. You guys know if you read the book of Acts, and we're going through Acts on Sunday mornings with Pastor Zeke, that Paul, when he gets going with his ministry... He would go to one city, start talking about the things of God. The Jews would follow him there and start giving him a hard time. So then he'd move on to the next city. And then what would happen? Everything would be great, right? No. The Jews would follow him to that city. And then they'd complain about him. They'd string him up. They'd, they'd beat him. They'd do all these different things. Then they'd move on to the next place. And then the Jews would follow him there. And everywhere he goes, there's problems that come from the outside. He says, uh, in stripes, those, that's beating that they would take whips or they'd take rods and they would beat him. He, he had been falsely accused. He'd been thrown into prison. And they would beat him and he'd have stripes, imprisonments, that people would falsely accuse him and they'd throw him into prison. And he'd be, he'd be you know, and, and I, we see in the book of Acts some major imprisonments of his, but we know because he was the apostle Paul, there was probably plenty of other ones too, of times that he was uh, got, sent and locked up. But he says, in stripes and in imprisonments and in tumults, these fights, that people opposed him at every step. If we don't have a mind to endure, if we're not knocked out by just the general trials of life, sometimes we could be knocked out by opposition, can't we? That people coming against us, people not being for us. And it might not be to this same degree of them beating us and imprisoning us and fighting us on every corner. It might not be that. But we have fights in our own ways, don't we? That there's people who oppose us, whether it's family, whether it's friends, that would go, oh, you following the Lord and you serving the Lord. Man, what a waste, how silly. I remember I had an uncle who would give me such a rough time all the time. Why are you wasting so much of your time and money on that church stuff? And there were times that you kind of feel like, yeah, why am I doing this? Maybe I should just stop. These guys will stop. Paul knew that in a greater measure than all of us. Then not only was there this, just the general stuff that comes from life or the stuff that comes from men and, and opposition that way, but, but there was things that, that Paul himself just lined himself up for. Some, some would call these uh, self-inflicted things. But he says, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in fasting. That he chose to keep laboring. He chose to keep going. It says that there was sleeplessness. He talks about, and you can look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul goes through kind of his whole resume of all the things that he suffered as an apostle. 
But he, there, was, there was sleepless nights as he worried for the churches. There was sleepless nights as he worried for, for his spiritual children. Just like you know as a parent, there's nights that you don't sleep. Why? Because you're worried for your kids. Are they making the right decisions? Is it going to work out okay? Is everything going to be all right? Paul, just like that, would spend time up all night with the Lord. He says also fasting, that he would take times of just, of just abstaining from food, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not on purpose, but these ones on purpose, that, that he chose to draw near to God even through all these things. You would think that with the, with the trials of the world and with the trouble that comes towards him from other people, that there might be this desire when he did have personal time to just totally relax. Instead, he pushed in deeper. And I think that's so necessary when it feels like the heat's being turned up to, to not step back, not hide back, but to press in closer to the Lord and to what he wants us to be doing. Last here, not last, second to last, in verses 6 and 7, he's going to talk about the resources that have been given by God and the reason that he can continue going. He says it's by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness. It's by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. There might be hardships coming, he goes, but, but I've got some equipment too. Uh, this is what I love about the Lord and serving him is that he equips us to do the work he's called us to do. Uh, I remember when I started working construction that there's certain things you need to be equipped with. And what I loved about the company I worked for is they provided all those things before you stepped into the arena to start working, right? Uh, what we call the, the personal protective equipment. They go, if you don't have it, we'll provide it because you need to have it. God's the same way, more so though. So what does he gives us? He gives us the ability, and it kind of all centers around that middle one where he says, by the Holy Spirit, that God has given us the power to follow him. He's given us the power to live for him. He's given us the power to keep serving him. That he has given us not just a resource, but he himself is the source and, and he fills us with his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I used to ask, when I first started teaching the Bible, my fifth and sixth grade kids that I used to teach, I said, do you find that it's hard to be a Christian? And they go, yeah. In fifth and sixth grade, they already knew it was hard to be a Christian. I go, it's not hard. It's impossible. And I'm finding it gets more and more impossible, doesn't it, as you get older. I always thought it'd get easier as life kept going. I don't think that's true. I think it's harder now to follow the Lord than it was when I was in fifth and sixth grade. But God's given us his Holy Spirit to live his life through us, that we surrender ourselves. And that's why we sing songs like, like more of you, God, less of me. That if I could get more of Jesus living in me, if I can get more of the Holy Spirit's power flowing through me, then I can live this life the way I'm supposed to live and please God and to serve him. And so he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then through that, we're able, he says, by purity and by knowledge and by long suffering and by kindness, 
that, that he's able to live a pure life and, and be kind of blameless. He's able to have knowledge to do the right thing. He's able to be long-suffering. And, and what does it mean to be long-suffering? To suffer for a long time. That even as the accusations kept coming, he could be patient with it and he could be kind. He jumps over after saying it uh, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. This is one of the marks of a Christian, isn't it? Didn't Jesus say, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By all the verses you know. That's not what it says. By all the work you do, not that. He says, You'll, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. That even with all the stuff against Paul, he says, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, I can sincerely love people still. And that's tough. People have always said, ministry's great. It's the people that are so difficult. The, the, the reality is there's no ministry without people. But people are difficult, aren't they? You can try your best, people still don't like it. You can try your best, people still complain. But, but when you have a genuine love, you can continue to like put your heart out there and let it be broken time and time again. I've learned this, I've told people, I've cried more tears over ministry than I have anything else in my life. But I can tell you this, God knows how to fix a broken heart. That when we lay it all out on the line in, God, in God's service and for people, and people just kind of take advantage of it, and they, and they just trash it, that we could go back to the Lord and go, Lord, can you put me back together? Because i got to get back out there. When there's this sincere love, and Paul says that he has this sincere love for the church. He says, by the word of truth, by the power of God, the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Verses 8 through 10, he talks about the world's view versus God's view of, of, what, of what things are. That there's honor that comes from God, dishonor from the world. He says there's evil report, uh, but there's a good report. He says some would see us as deceivers, and yet it's true. In some ways we're unknown, and yet we're well known. In many ways, it feels, it says, like we're dying, and yet, behold, we live. We're chastened, he says, but yet we're not killed. Verse 10, as sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. As poor, yet we can make many rich. And having nothing, and yet we possess all things. And that's the paradox of serving the Lord. That it feels like we're empty, but we could help make others full. Right? It feels like we're sorrowful, and yet there's rejoicing in it. Again, there's times it feels like there's nothing, and he says, yet we possess all things. In verse 11 and 12, he says, Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is open to you. You're not restricted by us. You're restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak to you as to children, you also be open. The Corinthians had kind of, kind of, uh, kind of, in a way, played the victim here. That, that they didn't like Paul's correction so often. And so they kind of pulled away and they go, there's this distance between us and Paul because he says mean things to us and we don't like it. And he goes, he goes look, it's not, you're not restricted by us. It's your own affections that have done that. He goes, so in return, we want to ask you to do something. This is, this is where, you know, kind of, uh, it's the example of like this dad who explains to his kids, look, I go out and work hard every day to bring home the money here. I do all this for you. You're my child. But now in return, I'm going to ask you to do something. 
you've got a responsibility here too. And that's what Paul's doing here. He just talked about all that he's been through, all the things that he's had to do and what God has done in him. And he turns it back to them now and go, now I'm going to ask you something. Because of who God is, because we do want to be well-pleasing to him, because we are his ambassadors, because he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, because, and even Paul would say, and because of the example I've given to you, now you need to be open to what God is telling you. He says, you're not restricted by me. It's your own affections that have restricted you. And what's he talking about when he says that? When he says that their own affections restricted them, Dave Guzagatz asks this, what did they love too much? First, they loved the world too much. We've seen that all throughout Corinthians. And in the following verses, we'll see that too. But they also loved themselves too much. They refused to really deal with their selfish and their worldly attitudes. And so he's asking them to quit it. You know, there's times as a parent when you have, it's not fun when you have to jump in and correct, but it is necessary. And so Paul's going to tell him, here's the issue. Now, we've been talking for like three years now, right, since we started 1 Corinthians on any day that Pastor Zeke was out. So if you haven't been here the whole time, you'll have to catch up. But since the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with a church that is carnal, that they have desires for the things of this world. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians, he reminded them, hey, evil company will corrupt good habits. Here he gets to the crux of it. Here's where he finally says it, and, he, and, he, and it's not something he makes up, it's something he brings from the Old Testament. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll find it. But he says, so I'm asking you, verses 14, 15, and 16, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That would be another word for the devil. Or what part has a believer with a non-believer, an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? You, and he's talking to them, you, multiple people at a time. You guys as the church are the temple of the living God. And so he says this, look, if we're going to be God's representatives in this world, and again, an ambassador isn't someone who has their own game plan that they're running. They're sent by their uh, government to behave a certain way in front of others. And, and you and I, as ambassadors of Christ, we represent God to people in this world. I think that's the highest calling. I think that's the highest calling as a Christian. The highest calling, I don't think, is to be a mother or a father or, or to be a teacher in children's ministry or a worship leader or a pastor or anything like that. That's not the highest calling. The highest calling is that all of us are called to represent God to this world as his ambassadors, that people, right or wrong, make judgments about our God based on our behavior. That's something, isn't it? And so he says, so I'm going to ask you to purify yourselves if you're going to be an ambassador of Christ, he goes, you've got to purify yourselves. So he says, don't be unequally yoked with, with unbelievers. Now, a lot of times we see this verse in youth ministry. <laughs> and, and for young adults saying, well, don't marry an unbeliever. Now that's true, but it's way bigger than that. It's not just this small thing and this only this one place. It's everywhere. 
And, and he's not saying, now again, if, if you'll remember multiple times Paul has talked about, we don't just retreat and go live in our own Christian bubbles. This doesn't mean we never interact with the world. Doesn't mean that. Paul says we're in this world, but we're not what? Of the world. Uh, it's this picture of a, a ship is in the water, but water shouldn't be in the ship, Right? And that's how we are in this world, that we walk with the Lord. We have to be in a place where we interact with non-believers, or else why are we even ambassadors of Christ? We're working together with God. But he says, but, but where's the influence coming? And that's the problem here for these Corinthian Christians. They were so carnal because they were so attached to the world. The idea of, of, of yoking two oxen together. The rules were clear in the Old Testament. He goes, you don't take different animals and yoke them together. You don't take like a really big one and a really untrained one and have them work together. Because inevitably what would happen is, is they would pull in different directions. They wouldn't walk straight together. And what happens when they don't walk straight together is one is always trying to fight. And usually you'd have a trained oxen and, and you'd have one that's similar in size, but that can be trained and, and they're going to walk together. One is leading, but the other one's helping carry the load. When you, when you unequally yoke them, when you have a wild one or, or a totally different animal, that one's going to want to keep going this way and the main one's going to keep going like this and keep pulling back and it's going to be this battle the whole time to get back online and to get back and fix. And what would happen very often is that in the end, either the, the oxen that tried really hard would just quit trying and go fine wherever or it'd break its own neck from pulling so hard all the time to keep things straight. This is a picture of what it means to be unequally yoked in a spiritual sense. Is that, uh, and you see it in, in James chapter 3, when he talks about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of this world. He says the wisdom of God, it's pure, it's peaceable, it's willing to yield. But the wisdom of this world, what does he say? There's selfishness, there's hypocrisy, and he says there's confusion and every evil thing is there. And so the, the aim of this world is not toward the aim of God. Is this to say that there's non-Christians who are, we don't look at unbelievers and go, oh, you're way worse than us. No, a lot of them are a lot nicer than some of the people here, right? I know who I live with. I live with myself. I look in the mirror and that's my biggest enemy every morning when I look in the mirror. I'm like, you go away, man. The worst person I ever met right? And you know that about yourself too. So it doesn't mean we're nicer or we're better. Now we should at some point be growing in love and growing in our relationship with the Lord. But the reason that we don't unequally yoke ourselves to unbelievers is because they're walking in a different direction. The values, the goals, and sadly the ultimate destination are different. And even if they're just a few degrees off, it would seem, they're still not going the same way. And we always, you know, you talk about this. If you're just one or two degrees off, we can take 10 steps forward and we could probably still touch hands with each other if it's only, you know, a few degrees off. But by the time you get to the end of the parking lot, you, you can't touch each other's hands anymore. 
you get to the end of Nielsen Road right there at Sheep Creek, we're going to be probably a couple hundred feet apart. You could probably still see each other. That's fine, right? But you can't connect anymore. You go another 10 miles, you might not even be able to see each other. You certainly wouldn't be able to hear each other shouting. And as we walk, and as he says, as we, as we unequally yoke ourselves to non-believers, that's what happens, is we're always pulling our neck back. We're always, and so I'm, we're talking about influence. What is influencing our decisions? If you're a note taker, because we don't have time, we're wrapping up right now. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. He says that the man that's blessed by God... In verses 2 and 3, he'll say that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree firmly planted. He bears fruit in season, right? But what, what he starts when he explains who this man of God, this person who's blessed of God is, he says this in Psalm 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, and he doesn't stand in the path of sinners, and he doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. That there's two things that this man who's blessed of God does. Obviously, he draws near to God as best as he can. But he also is not influenced by the things of this world. And so I've always said this, that our best hours, our best times, need to be with people who are encouraging us to grow in our relationship with the Lord. You've heard a lot of times that example of, of coals and and they they stay hot when they're all together right and that fire will keep burning for hours and hours and hours if they stay close together but if you take one of them and you set it out over here it's not going to stay burning and stay hot as long as it would have if it was close by and I think that's a good word for some of us today because because he asked he goes he goes what fellowship does righteousness have with lawlessness Again, not that they're terrible people, but, you know, I, I'm doing jury duty this week, and so I've, uh, I can't tell you guys anything about it, sorry. But, uh, but I'm sitting there thinking, I'm accountable to a way higher standard of laws than what we're going to talk about in this courtroom, right? As Christians, don't we have a higher standard to live to? Not only should we obey all the laws here in this land, but man, there's laws that go to the core of who we are that God gives us, isn't there? To those who are non-believers, they don't have those same set of rules. They're not accountable to God for those things. He says, what communion has light with darkness? I like this guy, Hodge. He says, by using the, the term communion, Paul indicates that he really means influence more than just the presence of uh, uh, being with somebody else. He says, parties are said to be in communion when they are so united that what belongs to one belongs to another or when what is true of one is true of another. It speaks of influence, you see. And so as ambassadors of Christ, as people who are being led by God, as workers together with him, he says, there needs to be this separation that happens. Not because of better or worse, but because of, of where we're headed. I want to just read one more quote in and, and verses 16. Sorry for time. But he says uh, in verse 16 how God would say to them, I will dwell with them. I will walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. 
That comes from Ezekiel chapter 37. And then in verse 17, he says, So come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch what is unclean. I'll receive you. He says, I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters. Do you see what even happens there in that progression? That he says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. But then it comes even closer. I'll adopt you. You'll be my sons. You'll be my daughters. There's something to be said for holiness, from, from stepping away, not just stepping away from, from sinful things, but stepping towards God. And we'll finish here with a quote by Alan Redpath. He said, it's not a question of simply trying to empty our heart and life of every worldly desire. What an awful impossibility. It's rather opening your heart wide to the love of God in Christ and letting that love just sweep through you and exercise its expulsive power till your heart is filled with the love of God. That's the goal. As we serve the Lord, as we work together with him, as as we endure in this race, that since those are true, He says, put some distance between you and the influence this world has on you. Don't put yourself in a place where we're making the same decisions, where we have the same goals and desires. Uh, Ours is not just the American dream. The Bible says that that we, we long for a city whose builder and maker is God. Not only are we ambassadors of Christ, Paul tells us later in Philippians that our citizenship is where? In heaven. And that's what we're living for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for all you've spoken to us. Lord, for some of us, I pray that this word would have been an encouragement to keep going as we walk with you, as we follow you. Lord, for some, maybe, though, it's a little bit corrective, and we welcome that, too. That, Lord, if there's an area in our life that we're not totally straight with you, if there's areas in our lives that aren't what they need to be, that, God, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit that you'd give us the power to follow you. Lord, that you'd help us to walk with you. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray that you would uh, just be glorified and magnified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we stand?